Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the 51st episode of For What It's Worth podcast, the podcast that is the singular reason that many of you are alive today. So we, we're going to go through our normal routine here. It's uh, 22 degrees, partly cloudy snow flurries here in Santa Fe. We got about two inches of snow last night, not nearly enough. They predicted end of the world storm, never hit, at least here. Up on the mountain, they're getting some good stuff. But uh, we have to wait now for uh, the next big storm because we are dry. That's the update here. Uh, I'm a bit tired today. I don't know why. I got plenty of sleep. I got up and did yoga. Did not feel great during yoga. Kind of feel a little limey in my head today. So it's not a good feeling. And I want to do this podcast and a film and 14 other things that I have on my calendar today that I may or may not get to. So who is this podcast for? If you're new, I always start with, hey, what's the deal? Uh, who is this for? Why on earth would you want to watch this? Okay, well, this is for anyone who had at least one horrific night on tequila. I find, because where I live in the Southwest, tequila, mezcal, drinks like that, very popular here. So most people have it in their water bottles, on their bikes, on their hikes, etc. But tequila is a very interesting alcohol because most people have at least most people that you would actually want to know have at least one horror story revolving tequila. And if you haven't had a horror story or you meet someone who hasn't had a horror story on tequila, they're probably not that interesting. That's my experience. So my tequila horror story uh, ended up at UT Austin. My roommate and I, for some unknown reason, got our hands on this incredibly large bottle of very average to below average tequila and just proceeded one night to just drink the entire thing. Now, I knew something was wrong when I woke up the next morning, unsure as to where I, I ended up sleeping. And I noticed that the front door of our apartment was open and the keys were still in the front door. And we had somehow managed to give away our appliances. We, we had give, gone out on a drunken rampage in the apartment complex that we lived in near the campus of UT. And for some unknown reason... We must have been happy drunks because we gave away our appliances and, and didn't realize it until later when we'd see someone in the building and they'd say, hey, man, thanks for the blender or, you know, thanks for the Cuisinart. And we're like, what? So that was my experience on, on tequila. And uh, hopefully you had a good one, too. This is also this podcast is for anyone who has a Molly Hatchet tattoo. If you have a Molly Hatchet tattoo, which has to be when I hear Molly Hatchet, all I can think of is 1970s. Southern America, pickup trucks, fist fights. I don't know that, that band. If you have a Molly hatchet tattoo, I think you're going to like this podcast. Or if you're named Molly because your parents named you after Molly hatchet, you might like this podcast. Or if you're on Molly right now, you might like this podcast. So let's move on. The hero of the week. And this is out of right field. Okay. I know this is a bit of a stretch, but I, this is where I'm going, and it's my podcast, and you can't stop me. The hero of the week is Donald Trump. I know, I know, I know. Every movement, every sound he utters is an absolute disaster. However, watching him attack the party that enabled him for four years, is it's not hilarious, it's poetic. That's what it is, watching him attack, and especially people like Ted Cruz, where he literally not only attacks Ted Cruz, he attacks Ted Cruz's wife. 
just horrible things, just saying and doing horrible things in regard to Cruz's wife. And Cruz just turns around and goes, whatever you want me to do, man, what, whatever I have to do and say, watching Trump attack the Republicans is so poetic. If, if you're a Republican supporter, which is well within your rights, and I totally get uh, you know, why people would like the Republican Party, I know that um, historically— I mean, I don't know if people like the current Republican Party. They claim that they might, but I think most of us who or anyone who would associate with the Republican Party, those tend to they tend to look back in history on episodic periods with the Republican Party. You know, I have friends who are complete hero worshipers of Ronald Reagan. And so they, they, they're still Republican fans and they look towards the Republican Party and they bring up Ronald Reagan as if that aspect or those people are still around. Now, the Dems do it with like the Kennedys, right? Oh, the Kennedys, you know, the Kennedy era. And they look back as if anything in the modern Democratic Party resembles that. So anyway, I just love watching Trump attack the party that enabled him. It's poetic. And speaking of poets, they're also my hero of the week. And now Amanda Gordon's getting a lot of uh, publicity. She was the one that spoke at the inauguration, the poet. I have not listened to her. I haven't listened to anything with the inauguration. I have absolutely no interest in inaugurations whatsoever. I would rather watch The Price is Right reruns than watch an inauguration. I just, it just, I never have. I'm not interested. It's not that I'm not interested in Amanda Gordon. I love poetry, and I think poetry is this very strange subculture that, that doesn't get the respect it deserves. But if you look back historically, globally, at the impact that poets have had on society, it's kind of incredible. And so if you don't read poetry or write poetry or know about it, then this is your lucky day because it is an endless well. It really is. I bought my mom a book of poetry last year. My mom can quote poets off the top of her head. She's losing her short-term memory, kind of. Although I think we've solved that with some with some diet changes, some supplement changes, and et cetera, and some medication. My mom's actually doing a lot better. And it's nice to get a phone call that's a positive phone call and not not a negative phone call. But my mom can just quote poetry off the top of her head. It's unbelievable. And I'm not talking about one line or two lines. We're talking entire poems. It's crazy. I don't know how that happened. I can't do that. No one, certainly no one else in my family can remotely do that. I don't know if my, the rest of my family can say the word poetry or pronounce it. Yeah, we're hicks. I mean, we are hicks, man. There's no two ways about that. I can, like, like they say, you can put lipstick on a pig. But my family, we're pigs. Okay, scum of the week. Let me see what I have here. I take, I take notes during the week, and then I forget, and I just start the podcast, and I do no research whatsoever because I just don't have the time. I'm on a clock, people. I got a lot going on. The scum of the week, Rand Paul really, really tried to win the award this week. He really did. What a doofus that guy is. Holy cow. I mean, in every, every year, he proves what a doofus he is. Um, I don't really care about Rand Paul. He's a moron. Uh, but he's not my scum of the week. Uh, he's allegedly just a radicalized political person who just spouts off the biggest bunch of nonsense ever. But that's not enough to do it this week. This week is about, and this is not one person in particular. This is a, a, a just a, a message to population in general. And some regions of the world, Asia, have done this really well. And some regions of the world, America, have done a horrible job, which is dealing with the virus. And there is something that is driving me insane. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I know some people who are very wealthy who cannot be bothered by coronavirus. 
And there's almost this, first of all, there's a sense of entitlement in America that is astounding. And two, there is this notion of, I'm not going to let it bother me. I'm not going to let it impact my life. And I'm not going to change. And I'm going to do whatever. And it's no big deal. And I don't care if I infect anyone else. And I don't care if anyone else has to take evasive action because of me, because I'm not going to let the virus get in the way. I know someone who took their entire family on a ski vacation just for fun. People who've already had infections in their family, who've already had other people around quarantining because of those infections. I know of another family who was in all infected with COVID, who knowingly got on a plane and went to Vegas on vacation. Uh, billionaires are not affected by this. Billionaires are going out and they're doing whatever they want. And this is the second part of this little scum of the week thing. There's people who are jumping the vax line. And I already know a couple of people who've done this. They're wealthy people who have just weaseled their way into getting the vaccine. You knew this was going to happen. That's the way things work in America. You can, you can wealth yourself out of the reality of the rest of the world. And that's what these people are doing. They're going on safaris. They're going on vacations. They're traveling around. It's unnecessary, unrequired travel and experiences because they want to, and they can. They have the money to do it. They can fly private or they can fly first class, and they don't care if they're infecting other people. They don't care if they're putting other people at risk. I don't think, I don't, I, I guess we're past the point of coming to our senses about the virus. Um, I still talk to people that claim they don't have it in their neighborhoods. I still uh, talk to people who claim that their states have it under control. I did a quick Google search the other day of another state here in the country after speaking to someone who said, hey, you know, oh, it's not bad where we are. You know, in our area, in our circles, everything's fine. Did a quick Google search on the city that they're in, and the mayor had come out and just said, we're, we're, we're in deep trouble. Like the hospital, we have 6% left ICU, ICU beds. We're building tents and parking lots. We've got 13,000 people in ICU right now with uh, coronavirus cases. The new variants are spreading. We can't stop it. You know, we're out of control. California, Gavin Newsom opening up the state again, that is just mind-boggling to me. And I think he's doing it for political reasons because they're going to recall him. But to, to basically look at L.A. County and you know look at the weight line to have your body incinerated because they can't burn the bodies fast enough, and now you're going to open it up to indoor and outdoor. I guess it was just outdoor dining. It's all just ridiculous. If we look at Asia, Asia to me looks primed to take over the entire world, from New Zealand all the way up to whatever, Japan. It's, they are just so much more cohesive, advanced, logical, intelligent, educated, et cetera. It's horrifying. Even, even the, the countries that you wouldn't necessarily associate with that, if you look at the progress that Vietnam has made, uh, countries like that in terms of geopolitics and uh, education, it's, it's absolutely impressive across the board. And I'm not saying it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So don't think I'm telling you that Australia has perfectly solved the coronavirus. But oh my God, compared to us, we have done conceivably every single thing wrong because we politicized a medical problem. Our doofus president, and I just listened to the Bob, Bob Woodward interview again this morning about Trump just saying, Trump talking, this is just mystifying to me. He does 18 interviews with Bob Woodward that are on the record, and he admits of what he's doing behind the scenes and what he believes. And then he goes in front of the, the podium to America and just lies and lies and lies and lies. And everyone around him lies while he's admitting the opposite to Bob Woodward, who you know, by the way, who's been investigating presidents for 50 years, you know this is going to become public, and yet we just botched it, like worse than you possibly can. So someone asked me yesterday, well, how come Biden hasn't done the lockdown yet? And my response was, he can't. 
because when you have stooges like Greg Abbott in Texas, remember in April, we're open for business. Boom, blows up in his face. Cases explode. Oh, I guess we there's a problem now. They can't, I don't think there's anything Biden can do to get any of these red state governors to follow along or even mayors. Inside the states, you have defiance at the uh, at the mayor level. So it's a mess. We deserve what's happening in, in a lot of ways because we went down this path. And so the scum of the week is anybody with entitlement who is out there ignoring coronavirus. Uh, and this, look, I love cycling, as you know. There are bike races happening all over where people are not practicing safe distance. They're clustering up. Everybody has an excuse as to why they're doing it and why it's okay for them to do. We just don't learn. And it's kind of sad, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better. Okay, tech woes of the week. I was going to say I didn't have any tech woes this week, but oh, that would be impossible because it's me. Here's what I've noticed. About 50% of the time, if I try to plug in an external drive into my new MacBook Pro with an adapter, it doesn't work. The drives have to go into the machine itself. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. That's not good. And that's on three different adapters, which I have to use at all times, because some of the ports on some of the adapters work, and some of them don't. And they'll work at times and then not work at other times. So I have this MacBook Tower, this old 10-year-old trash can Mac that app that uh, Blurb sent me, and I, they are sending me another monitor, which is great, because I don't want to have to switch or like try to use one monitor for everything. I like having the idea of the machine that will do all my film, film work, uh, meaning my YouTube stuff, will be separate, and it will not be connected to anything. It will just be a standalone unit that I will only use to do the film stuff. And it will attach to my, my archive, my hard drive SATA 40 terabyte system with interchangeable drives so that I can back everything up. Someone asked me the other day, what are you doing with the footage when you're done with it? Are you deleting everything else and just keeping the one little thing? No, I don't ever delete anything. I learned that a long time. I learned that from Dirk Halstead back in the Monica Lewinsky era. You do not throw things away, especially when you're making films, because so many times you can go back and go, oh, there's a two or three second piece of that film that I can't go back and reshoot that would be great in this other film and I never thought about it when I made it so why would I throw it away backing stuff up buying hard drive buying online space that is part of that's the price to do in business if you're a creative and I know that there's all kinds of people that throw everything away but most of them are never people who have worked full-time professionally and they've never lived off an archive talk to any photographer in their 60s 70s 80s who has been very successful and, and you're, they will tell you you are insane for throwing things away. I know photographers right now, the only reason they are surviving, and they're actually not just surviving, they're living incredible lives because they retain the rights to their archive. They did not throw things away. They have everything, and they're mining it on a daily basis. So I feel the same about film. So Blurb's sending me this new monitor, and I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to have two 32-inch monitors. I'm going to look like I actually know what I'm doing. And then the original monitor just died. Literally, I was sitting there having the thought, this is going to be great. And I, and I woke up my laptop, which, by the way, still dies at least once a day. I get an error message saying, your laptop, whatever, had to shut down. Do you want to send this report to Apple? That happens once a day. I have to restart everything. I'm used to it now. You know, I'm so used to bugs in the system that it doesn't even phase me. So I restart the laptop, and the monitor will not come on. And I try everything. I try extra cables. I unplug, restart, do everything, and it's dead. And I say to my wife, well, that's it. Now I'm back to one monitor. When I get the new one, I'll just have one. 
And then lo and behold, I just left it overnight and it came on by itself. So I don't know what's happening. Uh, internet, the last woe of the week for me is that I was finally decided I need to get Wi-Fi at my house. I don't want to keep using the phone. I need to be able to upload, download YouTube films, do all this stuff. And so I start doing some research on internet that's available in my area. And get this, you'll love this. Guess what the fastest internet available in my house is? 1.5 megabits per second. 1.5. Yes, you heard me. Not three, not five, not 135, not 150, not 1,500, not 1,000. 1.5 megabits per second for 65 bucks a month. I tried satellite. I tried, uh, I, I tried a, uh, another service that has a tower on top of Ski Santa Fe, the mountain at 12,000 feet, but it has to be line of sight, and we're not line of sight. Um, that's the fastest I can get is 1.5 megabits per second. So I will know, I will not pay $65 for that. That's just useless. And uh, I will keep using my phone. And then when I need high speed internet, I will drive. Now, the upside of that is that it makes you think. And it also keeps you from surfing endless nonsense for no reason and then claiming that you don't have time to do creative things, which happens all the time. It's like having TV. Someone said, oh my God, you know, what TV do you have? Do you have Dish Network? You have, I go, I don't have TV. I have, I have Netflix that I stream through my phone, which works about half the time. And I re I've already read, I think, nine or ten books this year. I'm working on uh, three rereads right now. I just reread re No Country for Old Men, which is amazing. Never Cry Wolf, which is amazing. And I'm also rereading A Match to the Heart by Gretel Ehrlich, which is fantastic. God, even the first page and a half of the book, you're like, I don't know how to write. I don't know anything. I don't know how to write. I suck. She's great. I love this book. I've read it before. I think that's my 10th book of the month, right? I can do that because I don't waste time online and I don't watch television. It's amazing what you can do and get done. Okay, we're not even to the points yet and we're 17 minutes in because it's so good and I know that every, you're hanging on every word. Okay, point number one is about how lame uh, the creative world and journalism has become. And I don't know if you saw this story about Rolling Stone but Rolling Stone reached out and basically reached out to a bunch of, quote, thought leaders and said, hey, we think you're amazing. And if you pay us, and I don't remember exactly what the fee was, if you pay us like $2,000, then we'll consider letting you write for us. Now, this is a, this to me, I've, this is not the first time I've seen this. I got approached one time by a black and white photography magazine. That's a really beautiful publication. You look at it on the surface and you go, wow, this is amazing. This is great. Why have I never heard of this? And so they reach out to me and they go, we saw this essay that you did and we really want to do a feature on this essay. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about it. So we start talking about the essay. I'm doing an edit. We're, we're doing layouts. We're talking about this and that. And they go, yeah, it's only going to, you know, all, it's only going to be 1500 bucks. And I'm like, um, I was like, wait a second, let's talk about space rate in the magazine. And what it, what they meant was they only wanted $1,500 from me so that they could publish my work. And I literally was speechless for about 30 seconds until my brain registered what was actually happening, that these clowns were calling me. They had wasted all my time about running this photo essay and then were asking me at the end of the equation for 1500 bucks so that they could run my work. Now, that is the most insulting, idiotic thing I had ever heard in my life at that point in regards to photography. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? 
who 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 in their right mind would do this? Well, all I took was one second to open up an, an, an episode or an issue of theirs and see all these photographers who had paid to have their work included. It's just the worst – uh, the worst thing you could possibly do. It just sets such a horrible precedent. And so Rolling Stone is fishing, right? I cannot imagine that any of these publications are healthy now. They're just, it's so hard to put out a, print, a, print, a printed piece. It's so hard to get people away from the computer screen and the television screen. And it's harder by the minute, by the day. Every single day, it's harder and harder and harder to get people away. So print media is dying so quickly, even these legendary publications, if you look at what's happened to legendary publications in America in general, it's really sad. Their, their budgets are down. Their time in the field are down. The quality of their work is down. The cheesy advertisement, advertorial kind of thing is up where you're looking at something and reading it, and it's not specifically labeled as advertising, but you know something is wrong when you're reading the article. That's called advertorial. That's called a brand that's paid, paying the publisher, paying the magazine to write a story that's supposed to look like a story and it's not. And they will take this right and left. And so Rolling Stone reaching out for culture and thought leaders and, a- and asking them to pay to write for the magazine, I'll tell you what it is. L-A-M-E, all caps, exclamation point. It's lame. They should be embarrassed. Point number two, mer- moving on. I don't know if you saw the fight this weekend. Uh, point number one is I am wrong. I was wrong about the fight, but let's talk about this because a couple of things went down. This is about MMA, Conor McGregor versus Dustin the Diamond Poirier. I would say three quarters of the quote-unquote experts in the world, including myself, had Conor McGregor winning that fight, right? This was, the I think, the second highest or third highest pay-per-view revenue ever in the MMA. And Conor got his ass kicked and got knocked out in the second round. So my my initial thought was, if, it's, if the fight ends within the first two rounds, McGregor will win. And if it goes further than that, he'll get tired. His cardio is not great. And he'll wear down. And Poirier is like a Chevy 350 with a four-barrel car. But he just, he just keeps going. The motor just keeps running. It's the, he's the Toyota Tacoma, the Toyota 4x4 of fighters. You know, you sink it underwater and the engine keeps running. And so Poirier came out and just destroyed him. And he did it with leg kicks. And if you don't know about leg kicks... So MMA is a very peculiar thing. And <clears throat> when you have strikers, right, in, the, in, in MMA, when you have two fighters who are considered strikers, typically the majority of the strikes that are coming from people are from the hands. So it's like boxing, but there's other techniques involved. Sometimes there's spinning elbows and spinning, spinning like hammer fists and stuff like that. But it's very rare that someone knocks someone else out with a kick. Like they can kick to the body, and they kick to the body, they kick to the body, and your hands, to protect yourself, start dropping. And then all of a sudden, they fake that kick to the body, and they come up with a punch to the head, and your hands are dropped, trying, thinking there's a kick coming, and that's how people get knocked out. The only person who really consistently does damage with kicks at that level is Stephen Thompson, Wonder Boy. So Stephen Thompson is another, M- another MMA fighter. He's in a, a slightly larger weight division. And he is a karate fighter. And these are not common in the MMA because often what people learn in karate school doesn't translate to an actual fight. And I know this because I was in martial arts for years. A lot of what you learn doesn't work because I ended up in an academy in Austin that was a personal protection academy that was run by some military guys. My father dropped me in there in middle school and just fed me to the wolves. And I just got my ass kicked over and over and over again because I'd been in traditional like taekwondo. 
and we were doing katas and forms and all that stuff. And you get in a ring with someone who's like a SWAT team guy from Austin and you just get pummeled and you go, okay, what I learned before is cool. It's interesting and it's helpful in ways, but it doesn't translate to the street fighting world. So a lot of the MMA is about grappling. It's about judo, jujitsu, striking, wrestling, and, and a combination of all those factors. And so what Poirier did is he broke down Connor's front leg. He broke it down with leg kicks. So when you kick someone's leg, you take your back leg, you swing it around, and you slam it, try to slam it into the muscle on their leg. And very quickly, especially if you're hitting anywhere on the outside of the knee or down the outside of the calf, the muscle's very narrow, and it will go numb. And it will just absolutely stop working. And that's what happened to McGregor. You're supposed to check those by spinning. When you see the kick coming, you spin your shin into the other fighter's shin. So when he makes impact, it hurts him as well. So it's doing damage to him when he's trying to kick your leg. And McGregor didn't check those kicks well enough. And his front leg just was completely compromised. And the second that happened, you knew it's over. It's just a matter of time because you can't move. You can't push off. You can't spring sideways. You can't do anything. And, and Poirier just destroyed him. And I looked at it. I did not see the fight. I just saw like stills after the fact. I don't really need to see it. Once I read the recap of what happened, I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And so a part of me said McGregor, who's one of the biggest stars in the history of the sport, he might be done. He might be at the level where he's not an elite fighter anymore because people have figured out the riddle. They figured out how to beat him. And you just can't be a one-trick pony. You can't be a left hand. And that's really what McConnor, uh, McGregor had become. Was just, His left hand is unbelievable. And Poirier said, he hurt me, what he called flashed me. He said, yeah, he flashed me really bad with that left hand early in the first round. And if he would have been able to follow up with the second one, I'd be done. So it was closer than people thought. And now they're already talking about the rematch because they're, it's one and one and whoever wins the trilogy you know, sort of walks away with the belt kind of thing. So I have a sinking suspicion they'll do that. But McGregor needs to really change up his, his match. The fight that was interesting to me was not the McGregor-Poirier fight. That was surprising and interesting, but not like my favorite thing. The fight prior to that was where things get interesting. You had Dan Hooker, who's a, who's a Kiwi, big, tall, lanky dude. He's a warrior. He's been in with a bunch of different people and gone five really hard rounds with people, and he's tough, against a guy named Michael Chandler. And Chandler had come from another, not, not UFC, he'd come from another fight group called Bellator. And so when people typically enter UFC, they're under the bright lights, big city for the first time. And they often have really horrible debuts because there's a lot of pressure. The entire fight world is looking at you and everybody is watching. And so often they fade. Chandler, I didn't know that much about. I knew he was a good fighter. I knew he was a great wrestler, but I had never really seen how he operates in the ring. And I tell you, that guy to me is the future champion. He is unbelievable. First of all, he is an incredible wrestler. So you don't want to grapple him and get him on the ground because he's going to turn it around on you pretty quick. But if you want to see an explosive puncher and someone who commits, I mean, he knocked Hooker out in the first round with a left that was just, you could see it coming from outer space, and you're like, this is done. If that, if anything he throws connects, it's done. And he connected, and it was over in, immediately. But to see the way he operates, and one of the things you learn when you're in a martial arts class, especially a street fighting class, is that you have to, when you're, if you, the last thing in the world you ever want to do is fight. That's the last thing. There's all, almost always a way out, and that's what you want to do. But if you're forced, if, you're, if you have to do something, 
one of the key things is to close the distance between you and the person that you have to fight. And you do not want to do that in a straight line. You want to come at an angle, an off angle from instead of straight in. And how to do that and bridging that gap is an art form. And it, you know, it's fluid. It's changing every second of every minute of the encounter that you're in. And you have to get in and get out and get in and get out. Unless you're like a wrestler grappler where you get in and then you take the person down and whatever. And these fights, street fights typically don't last more than about 15 or 20 seconds. They're very violent and over and it's awful and you should try to avoid it at all costs. And if you end up in a street fight, it means you're a moron and for the most part, and you've, you've avoided a million ways of getting out of that fight, especially if you're two dudes at a bar and you're like acting bowing out on each other. It's embarrassing. But what Chandler does is his side-to-side movement when he's bridging the gap between his opponent is masterful. His stance is super wide. And he can jump, he can go sideways either direction in just milliseconds and then commits to a punch unlike anyone I've seen in MMA in a long time. There is, not an, there is nothing in his body that is not committed to that punch from his toes up to the tip of his, his index finger, his knuckle on his index finger, which is drilling towards his opponent. It's impressive. I mean, it to, in, in terms of skill and style, that guy is way more polished than I thought. And I have a sinking suspicion that you might be looking at the new lightweight champion. Even after, I, he, I don't think they're going to give him a title shot because Poirier said, no, I had to work for years to get a title shot. He can't come in, have one win and get a shot at the title. That's not fair. He's got to fight other people first before he gets to me. That does make sense to me. You got to put your time in. You got to earn it. But man, that dude was impressive. Okay. Uh, and I know there's probably like three MMA people on this podcast, three listeners who might even know anything about MMA, but Hey, it's interesting to me. It's a sport. It's a skill, whatever. Uh, point number three is an AG 23 update. So there is a lot in the works and some things I cannot tell you yet because they're not solidified, but there have been, there was a meeting a couple of weeks ago between two people that I was very, very, very happy to get together. And I was the one that instigated the meeting. And I put two people together, and they had a, I thought would be a very short meeting. It was two and a half hours long. There were notes taken. There were ideas thrown about. There were commitments made in regards to AG23. That is a very, very, very good thing. That means that this year, 2021, potentially is going to take a massive jump up in terms of what this becomes and how it works. It is going to require more money, and it is going to require a lot more time and a lot more organization and probably more people, which could may or may not happen. But all I can say is very positive happenings behind the scenes. Last week, I got the proof of the second issue from Zoe and Sydney, Zoe Sadakirsky. And it's gorgeous. The cover and front cover are very interesting. Um, we're still working on whether or not we want to include something with the with this second issue that would make the front cover even more interesting. But I don't think we will because I think it's kind of a novelty and might end up getting thrown away. And I just don't want it to be wasteful, right? I don't think it's critical. So what I'm doing is I'm going through the proof and I'm I'm checking for spelling on names and and um, you know the sequence of how things are 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 you know what contributor comes first and second and third and fourth and fifth and how it works and um, I almost switched the contributor number five to contributor one and then my wife looked at it and said no 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 I love that person who goes fifth and her her work is really solid and it's a great way to anchor the end of the zine and here's the truth about the zine the zine is a taste 
That's all it is. The zine is 60 pages total, and there's five contributors. So you're, it's not like there's 60 pages of one person, and you're going to get this huge in-depth idea. The zine is a catalyst. It is a catalyst to get you to the website to learn more about the story and the contributor. And it's a catalyst that just sparks your interest in something or someone. The, the purpose of the zine is not to deliver a full hit of what the story is. For example, Andrew Kaufman in Florida, Panama Canal Project, we just ran the journals, right? And we just ran a tiny section of his journals, like whatever he had, six or eight or 10, 10 pages in the AG23. That's just a sample of one tiny piece of his portfolio about Panama. The website is where you can say, here's a link to his site, here's the book that he did, here's an audio interview, here's Sounds on the Street. The site is really where we're trying to drive people in the future. The zine just happens to be a very cool catalyst. Frank Jackson in LA, we did a tiny piece of his story about this, about coffee, about this espresso cup. But you go to Frank's website and you're like, oh, that's 1% of what Frank is and what 1% of what he's done and what he's doing. And that's what the zine is for. It's a catalyst. So all the stories that are in the zine are just tastes to get you to the site, to get you eventually onto the author themselves. We do not care if you're going to the Blurb site or the Beyond site. There's nothing in the zine about Beyond, about Beyond or Blurb. It's just to get you into the story, spark your idea. And then go, wow, this is interesting. I want to know more. I'm going to go to the site. You go to the site. You see the story. And then you go, I want to know more about this author. And then you go and you go to the author's site, not our site, not the Beyond site, not the Blurb site. You go to their site. In addition, it's about connecting the contributors themselves. So, for example, in the second issue, we have five contributors. Uh, three of them, two of them know each other. But the other three don't. They don't know each other at all. And I look at like um, the writer who's in the second issue who lives here in New Mexico. And I look at some of these other contributors in the second issue and I'm like, these people should know each other because they could work together. They, they could do projects together. They could trade clients together. That's what it's about. That Technically, AG23 is about brand collaboration, number one, which is Blurb and Beyond. Although, like I mentioned, they're not in the zine. Number two, it's about creative collaboration. Number three, it's about print. Number four, it's about community building. And that's twofold. That's community of readers like, your, like you people out there and myself. And it's also a, co a collaboration. It's about community building of the contributors themselves. So now we have 14 people between the first two issues that are now in a little database of people that should know each other. Now, I can only do so much. I can only say to people, you should reach out to your fellow contributors. It is up to them to do that. I can't force people to do that. But why on earth you wouldn't do that is, is a mystery to me. And I guarantee there will be plenty of people over the years that are contributors to this that will never reach out to a single other contributor. That's just the way the, the professional creative industries are. It's a, it's a very tr tricky field to navigate. And some people are very willing to reach out and say, look, I don't know you, but we were in the same issue together. I love your work. I would love to talk about, you know, let's collaborate. Let's write letters. Let's exchange ideas, whatever. And then you have other people who just don't want anything to do with anyone else. I'm still going to run their work. If they have good projects, I'm still going to run it. And for those of you out there, just know it has an open submission portal. Uh, and the funny thing about AG is 
like I've mentioned this many times before, I would say 20% of the photo industry now, the creative fields are haters. People are just haters. They're looking to hate everything, everyone, and anything that gets in their path. So I've had plenty of hate directed my way about AG23. And I was making a smoothie this morning and thinking about this. It was kind of funny to me. I had people talking behind my back about AG23, people that I know that don't know that I know they were talking behind my back because the people they were talking to told me, trashing me about AG23 and saying that their work was so much better than anything and that they should have been the ones chosen. And when the person they were talking to said, did you submit? They said, no, I didn't submit. So that's the kind of thing that you have to realize. Anytime you put yourself forward on a project like this, whether it's something this complicated as as what we're doing or something simple, you put it out. There's going to be a lot of hate directed your way. That's just the way it is. It's always been that way. From From when I was in photo school, and we would have to go do assignments and then come back and put your work up on the wall and the, your fellow students would have to critique you. They would, you had, you had people that would just trash you for fun. You know, they hated your DNA. They hated every single thing about you and they would say it in class. Now, that hate was still there, but it, there were only certain ways of delivering it. There was no online delivery. There was no cell phone delivery. There was no nothing. It was just in person. So in some ways it was more hateful but it also took more guts to get up in front of someone in front of a group of people and say, I don't like your work. This story, I don't get it. It doesn't work. I don't like you. I don't blah, blah, blah. It took more guts to do that than it does now where people hide behind you know, social or whatever or you know, emailing and chatting behind the scenes trying to trash people. But it's, the whole thing is hilarious. For me, I am so happy and so stoked that we have this project going that the first issue is done, that it sold out, that it was successful, that people, the contributors were happy with it. And that to me is a, you have to understand when I get a proof from the, from Zoe and Sydney, I get nervous. It is legitimate nervous because in many cases, I know the contributors. I don't know all of them, but I know many of them and I have a responsibility. I feel a tremendous responsibility to these people that I don't want to do something that they don't like. And so this is not fun and games. This, it should be, but it's not because I have the pressure of having to make sure um, that, <clears throat> that I put myself in their shoes and go, would I be happy with this? You know, is there something missing? Did I misspell a word? Did I did I edit a picture? And you know, Zoe sends a layout, and I'm, and there was like on this this one, I, I there was uh, with one of the contributors, I swapped two pictures. I said, can we move this one here? Swap these two because I think this one reads better as a smaller image, and I want to end the zine on this other image because that's the image that I first saw of hers that stopped me in my tracks, and I think that's an amazing image to anchor the back of the zine with, and so I'll make changes. But in my head. I'm in my friend's head saying, am I happy with this? Because no, there would be nothing worse for me. I, like when photographers hate me for AG23 or whatever, they, they say snarky comments. I just do not care. I don't care anymore. What would hurt me tremendously is if a contributor said, I'm not happy with this after it was printed and it came out. And by the way, we can't show the proof to everyone because then you're talking months and months and months of like going back and forth and back and forth. But again, I'm going to remind you of something that I said at the beginning. The zine is a taste. If, if the zine is only a little piece of the puzzle, it's like, a, it's like getting a book published in the career as a photographer. It's one little piece. It's very strategic and it can be great, but it's just something to build upon. 
So the five topics in the second issue, the second issue, by the way, the theme is transition. The five stories, completely unrelated, completely different, all totally different. One writer, four, four creatives. And they're just tastes. You can dive into these people. I mean, one of the people in the second issue has 40, well, maybe not that many, 35 years of full-time photography. Narrowing down what he put into the zine was a nightmare. I mean, he has so much work. We didn't even come remotely close. You could spend a month on his website digging into project after project after project. That's the goal is to get you into these places and people. So that's where we are with AG. I've got six people lined up for issue three already. It's going to be, it's a lot of work, man. And it makes me nervous and I just want to keep going. So that's it. Okay. Point number four is about winter at high altitude. So my wife and I moved here full time. Last year, we moved into this house March, March 9th. The New Mexico state shut down the 12th because of coronavirus, and um, we've been here the whole time. In the past, over the last prior to the 15 years prior to that, we were part-time residents here. And so we'd come in the winter, you'd suffer a little bit, and then you'd take off, go back to California. It's 70 degrees and moisture, and you know it's, it's easy. Tropical climates, and, and Southern California is not tropical, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically one weather pattern for most of the year. You get a very short, little bit wet winter, and then you're back into spring and fall. It's boring. It, weather-wise, California is incredibly boring. And climates like that have a tendency of producing a malaise in the population. They have a tendency of doing that. You hear about these SoCal Trustafarian people whose, whose grandparents owned property when it was orange fields, and you know they owned properties all over Southern California. They sold. None of the kids have to work. The grandkids, they're Trustafarian kids, right? And they sit around on the beach all day, and they kind of hang out. They don't do anything. The tropics sort of promote that kind of malaise. And there's an upside to that malaise and a downside. There is no malaise at 7,000 feet in the high desert. And like I said, it's, it was tomorrow morning, it's 10 degrees. The high tomorrow is 27 with wind and snow, and you have you have to earn it here. There is no. It makes you very keenly aware of the seasons and the subtle changes between seasons, the indicators as to how much time you have left. If you're a skier, a snowboarder, then this is the season that you're most adept to, and you're like you know looking at these telltale signs of spring. Is it going to be end of March, April? Maybe we get a late year. It's the beginning of May before things really start to, to thaw out. But you have to earn it here. And the first season at high altitude, I have to say, I like it. I really like it coming from California where there was no sense of urgency to do anything because of the weather. It just was always the same. There was, it was never part of the conversation. What I like about New Mexico now and living here full time is that there is no wasted time because the days are short, the temps drop the, as soon as that sun goes down it gets, the cold gets serious. You know, last night I went out and thank, thankfully to beyond, I have amazing clothing now. If, if I didn't have this stuff, I would be miserable because I just didn't have anything for winter. I'd lived in California for so long and I had, you know, a couple of things, but I just didn't have any kind of layering. I didn't have the right headgear, gloves, long underwear, none of that stuff. Once you have it, the cold is completely manageable. I did a, I did a hike last night. It was 25 and I had to unzip my, my outer coat and the layer underneath because I was too warm. And I took my gloves off th- uh, halfway through the hike as well, which for me is astounding because I am so skinny. And my hands are just bone and skin. I have no padding on my hands and feet 
they're cold all the time for the most part. And I was out on this hike and I'm like, wow, I have the right apparel and it works. But I love the fact that there's no wasted time here. It's going to snow again tonight. So the skiers are lining up, they're calling and getting their places on the mountain for tomorrow. I love that. I love the fact that if I have to get certain things done, I know that I have to take time in the middle of the day to do it because by 5 p.m., the temps are really dropping. It's too cold for me to cycle, you know, those kind of things. Overall, the first winter here has been fantastic, and it makes me appreciate where I live. It makes me appreciate time, and it makes me appreciate the seasonal change that we have here. Okay, point number five is about... I had not made a blur book in a year. Um, I am not in the field. I'm not doing projects. I'm not accumulating new work for the most part. I have my California long-term project that I'm working on, which, by the way, I made a decision about yesterday. I figured out a way to do the written part without having to write 90 pages of dialogue as a screenplay because I, I want to do that, and that's the best way of doing this story. This project would be best if I had my 90-page screenplay written, and that was the copy to use for the, the two photographic parts. But that will not happen because I do not have time, at not even remotely close to the time, to write a 90-page screenplay. Any time that I have now is going AG. It's not going towards screenplay. So yesterday, I'm on this hike, and I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to salvage this? And then I figured out a way to do this without writing it. I found another wrinkle to add to the story which instead of the story having two visual elements, it will have two visual elements with the idea of a third based on the copy in the story. And it's going to be really cool. And I found the copy. And it's not my copy. But um, I will explain it when I'm much further along because this could be really good. What I would love to do is conceivably get Blurb to do like a 500 book offset run, something simple like a 6.9 hardcover with a debossed cover, printed end sheet, basic paper, and do like a 500 book run uh, and put them out there. That would be pretty interesting. So I don't have that project done. So I did a test book and I used my van life work, which is not really van life work, but it's just work that I've random stuff I've accumulated while being on the road in the van for the last year. It's the only stuff I had. So I did a test book. It, I maxed out the page count for lay flat. I wanted to try the Mohawk paper and lay flat. I, I, have, I don't have a sample of that. I've never used one. And so to me, if you're going to make books and you don't make sample books, you're not really a bookmaker because there is no way around making sample books. And you know how I know that? Because I hear about it every single day. Photographers, him and Han, him and Han, they won't pull the trigger and they won't make a decision and they won't make a test book and they won't make a print. Then they do, then they do a book and then they're mystified why they're not 100% into it because of all the mistakes they made. My typography is too large and I don't like this cover material and I should have used another paper. And I'm like, uh, hello, it's called a test book. So I will pay for this book. I don't know. It's probably going to be a hundred and some bucks. It's a it's an eight by ten lay flat. Lay flats are expensive, although blurbs are some of the least expensive op, uh, out there. Uh, very specific portfolio style book. And I purposely put tons of stuff in the gutter to test how that lay flat looks. Now, I'm not selling this. I'm not promoting it. I'm not telling everybody to go do it. I'm not telling everybody it's a great book. It's just a test book. It's just a sample. I, I used to do these like once a week. And I just don't shoot anymore. So I don't have new content to put into books, which sucks. And uh, But I scrounged it together, and I'm curious. I'm going to try to get to town tomorrow uh, for the first world, find some internet, upload it, and move on. 
All right, there's point number six is about fossil fuel and about energy independence. And what's the reality? And I need some help here. Because um, I know that Biden came in and shut down the Keystone Pipeline, and hopefully he's going to shut down that Dakota Access Pipeline, because what we did to the Native Americans during those protests, should I cannot believe that no one went to jail for that. Because that was cruel and inhumane, and just unlike—if you don't know about those protests, what happened in the winter when we sent troops in and they sprayed people in the winter with water to try to like freeze them out. And these are Native Americans basically protesting the idea of a pipeline— uh, going over or on their land, you know, and if you're looking for a group of people who've gotten screwed over uh, more than anyone else, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone outside of the Native Americans. Uh, it's pretty bad. And so that hopefully shuts down. But you hear a lot of talk about energy independence. And from everything that I have read, these pipelines will have virtually no impact on energy independence in the U.S. It's almost like people, when they say, oh, we discovered oil in Prudhoe Bay in 1980. But when you look at the, at the discovery of oil in Prudhoe Bay, it did not move the needle at all in terms of the amount of, of oil that we were taking from overseas, that we were importing. And I don't think that these pipelines are going to get us to energy independence. And number two, um, and my friend made a really good point. He's like, you can build a pipeline that doesn't leak and is not an environmental disaster. You can, and there's samples of these around the world. The problem is the corruption level typically is so high that they don't do it because they don't have to, and they save money and they build pipelines that aren't great. Uh, another situation that's happening now is the Trans-Pecos pipeline that's conceivably going to cut through the Big Bend area. Carlos Slim, I believe, is on the other end, the world's richest man, and that's another disaster in the making. Um, and I'm just curious what you guys know or what you folks know about energy independence in these pipelines. Because to me, do we build a pipeline or do we take the money that we built for a pipeline? And I know this is a stretch. Bear with me here. 50% of all the car travel in America are trips under five miles. So do we take the money from the Keystone Pipeline and we put it towards bicycle infrastructure in America? Do you build bike lanes? Do you build bike locks, areas where you can lock your bike safely? Do we build a cycling infrastructure for those five-mile trips? Because that seems like a plan for the future as the fossil fuel does not. Fossil fuel seems like a disaster in the making, and um, I don't know what's going to happen there. Okay, so this is point number seven is about photography, but it's really about an argument with my wife. Um, we had not had a really good argument in a long time, but we had a really good one the other day, which is always fun. It's sporting. Gets the blood going makes you question every decision you've ever made in your life. Do you even really like this person? Does she like me? You know, that stuff. It's awesome. And it started because I have to be, I'm selfish when it comes to photography because I feel I don't have a choice. When I go in the field to make work, whether it's motion, stills, audio, writing, whatever, I have to 99% of the time, I have to be alone. Now, she can be there because she goes off and we don't talk, and I don't have to think about her. But if there's other people around, it's very difficult for me because a portion of my brain is thinking about the other people. 
and I'm not good enough to not be able to need that portion of my brain. I have to be selfish because here's the thing. When I'm doing photographs and shooting motion, I'm writing in my head. The script, the poetry, the writing, the blog post, everything is happening in my head as I'm doing these other things. But I need 100% of my capacity to do that. That's a selfish thing. And so my wife is so social and we're constantly going out in the field and sometimes I go out by myself and I'm fine. And then other times she'll say, hey, I've invited 11 people to go as well and we're gonna go do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I can't do that because it doesn't work for me. I can't make work if there's all these people around. And here's the thing, I I like these people and I wanna hang out with them. And it is fun to go out with other people. But I know when I go out with other people, I'm gonna miss something that I would have gotten if I was by myself. And so it's this weird, selfish trade-off. And when, when you're on the hook to produce this range of stuff and you have limited time, and, and the, the other added wrinkle in here is if you don't know, let's say that you've never made a YouTube film. Like let's say, for example, you look at my van life films or my expedition, everyday expedition film. That's a great example, everyday expedition. If you've never done that, you have no idea what it takes to do that. And it's not easy. And I'm not saying those are great films. I'm just saying it's a nightmare trying to record all of that stuff. You're you're recording 10 times more than you're using in these films. And even then, you're running out of content for a two-minute or three-minute film. And you're like, God, I just didn't do enough. I didn't get enough. I missed something. And then your brain thinks back on all the things that you missed and you blew or you had a thought in the field that would have been perfect for the script, but you couldn't write it down because you were doing something else and then you forgot about it. And now you can't remember what it is and that would have been the sort of kingpin to the entire event that would have made it a million times better and you can't do that. Now you throw other people in or you throw an event in where you, you have to manage, even photographing other people, not just having friends along with or you're traveling in a group, but photographing other people where you're then having to engage with them. It's really hard. And so I told my wife, I was like, look, I want to do this and I, I want to hang out with people and I want to do these sort of, you know, excursions where everybody's in their own car. No one gets close to one another. We're not, we're not going in restaurants. We're not going in anywhere. It's totally safe to do this. We're out in the middle of nowhere. It is fun. But at the same time, I'm like, God, and the pressure because, you know, work is, is not directly asking me for, well, they are direct, directly asking me for, for things, but when it comes to like sort of my, quote unquote my content, they're not. They're just waiting for me to produce it. But if I don't go out on the weekends, I don't produce it because otherwise it's just me sitting in here in the house making YouTube films, which is what I'm going to have to do again today because I don't have time to go out and record in the field. I'm just going to do another me on camera talking about TMAX 3200. Okay, that was point number seven. Um, point number eight is about something I mentioned earlier which is I reread No Country for Old Men. And it took me about two hours to reread that book. It's not a long book. And it's um, the design of the book is, um, you know, the type is fairly sizable. It's a lot of dialogue. So you're not, it's not dense. It's not like opening a Graham Greene novel where the type is in like nine point, uh, fonts nine points and there's no breaks and no paragraphs. It's just solid copy for like 500 pages. And you go, wow, this is going to be a grind. 
this is like pages of dialogue and it's so good and so different and just makes your brain flood with that imagery. And if you've seen the film, then you're comparing the difference between the film and the book. And it's fairly close in some sections and then not so close in others. They're both really, really good. Um, but it kind of made me feel bad because I read it in, in about two hours and I thought to myself, good God, like how long did he work on that? You know, and apparently like Blood Meridian is my favorite Cormac McCarthy book. Apparently, he wrote Blood Meridian while living in a trailer behind a grocery store in a parking lot in El Paso. Does not sound super glamorous. And I thought, man, and Blood Meridian is by far my favorite Cormac McCarthy book. I do love No Country. I love the Border Trilogy. I love everything I've ever read of his, but the, the Blood Meridian is the, is the masterpiece in my mind. And you read that, and you're like, good grief. How long and arduous was this process of putting this together. And I look at that, and, and a good photo project or a good novel or a good film, it, it, it requires us to take the time to savor it. And I kind of get the feeling that our culture now is like, oh, you did No Country for Old Men? Yeah, I read that in two hours. What have you, what's next? What have you done now? What have you done today? Yeah, I already read that. It's over, it's past, it's done. I want more. I want more. I want it now. I want it to be just as good. I want it to be endless. I want endless options. Netflix is the perfect example. Every day, someone's like, what's new on Netflix? What's new? I mean, have you watched it? I watched all those series. I watched all those movies, and I'm scouring Netflix every day. Where's the new recently added features? No, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. More, more, more. It has to be good. It has to be perfect. This series is amazing. And I kind of feel like we are literally about to explode because I don't think it great stuff happens that frequently. And then we're, we're setting ourselves up for just massive disappointment. For every Blood Meridian I read, there's 50 books that are just nowhere near as good. I still read them, and I have an appreciation for aspects, but you realize when you're in the, in the presence of a master, and you realize whether it's, a, whether it's a photographer or a painter or a poet or a writer or a politician or an environmentalist or, or a, a physicist, where you're in the presence of a master, we have to slow down and appreciate the mastery that they have been able to harness that you and I simply do not have. I am not a master at anything, literally. I wish I was, and maybe I could be if I eliminated everything else in my life, including my wife. <laughs> if I just eliminated everything, and I was like, I am going to be a master of the lotus position, and that's all I did forever. It's that, that Japanese 10,000 or 40,000 hours of like, I'm just going to take this chisel, and I'm going to work on this piece of wood for 50,000 hours, and then maybe I'll have an idea of what I'm doing. That's kind of the way I felt when I reread No Country. I felt bad. I was like, I need to just take a break, because I immediately picked up Never Cry Wolf and just burned through that as well. And now I'm on Match to the Heart, Gretel Ehrlich, doing the same thing. I had to put it down. I'm like, I got to stop. I got to slow down. And I got to start thinking about what these people just gave me in my life. So I think it's something you should do too. Point number nine. Uh, techies moving out of San Francisco, moving to Austin and Florida. We've talked about this before. Um, I feel bad for Austin and for Florida. And it's really hard to get me to feel bad for Florida because, Florida, you are making one doofus mistake after another. F Florida, your governor is horrible. Your politicians are horrible. The environmental situation, sea, sea level rise, et cetera. But you guys have no idea what is about to happen to your city when these tech folks come in. I've talked about this before. 
It is, it is akin to having your town end up on the top 10 places to live list. That is a death rattle for your town the second it ends up on there. How do I know that? Because I've lived in multiple towns that ended up on those lists, and I watched as the towns imploded because they suddenly got a bunch of wealthy people from out of state who came in, who bought up property, who drove up the prices, who built, built fences and gates and signs to keep people out. And then tried to turn the little town culture into the town culture that they had where they came from before, namely San Francisco, L.A., New York, etc. They come in and they ruin the local culture. They ruin the, um, the fingerprint of what the place is about. They bring all the baggage from these other places. They bring the cost of living. They bring the, the agro animosity. And it ruins it. Austin is a perfect example. I first went to Austin with my brother in his Toyota 4x4 white long bed, regular cab, four-speed pickup that I think was a 1980. And we put our BMX bikes in the back. I was too young to drive. I was in middle school, I think. My brother was just old enough to drive. And we drove to Austin and we parked downtown and we rode our BMX bikes all over town. And Austin was a town. It was not a city. It was a town. And then I went to school there. And uh, my roommate worked in a bar on 6th Street. And 6th Street was locals. And you had Stevie Ray Vaughan and Johnny Winter and Junior Brown playing on, on 6th Street. And you could, I could ride my bike from the school down to the bar and hang out, even though I wasn't supposed to, uh, but I did. And it was a town. The Greenbelt, Barton Springs, Zilker Park. Um, I would go at times, and there was no one there. I used to go bouldering at, at Zilker Park and Barton Springs and then jump in the springs after, and there was no one there. And now it is a zoo, and you have these huge companies moving in, and New Yorkers and Californians moving in, and it's already toast. I do, I have no interest whatsoever in going back to that town, city. Now it's definitely a city. I go back now, and I my family's still in Texas, but I go there every now and then, and I go into Austin, and I get out towards Dripping Springs, and I go. I don't want to go anywhere near this place. It's just so bad compared to what it was. And so, buyer beware. You can hype these folks all you want, but you have never met a more a greedier group of people on the face of the earth than these techies. And they will come in and they will take what you have and they will leave and they'll go somewhere else. They're like locusts. I feel bad for these communities because it's going to get ugly. Okay, point number 10. We're in an hour. I've still got a few things to do here because uh, I'm on a roll today. I feel, I'm starting to feel good now. But there's an article in front of me in Consumer Reports about, um, it's called, What Did We Do Wrong? I think is what it's called. Let me see here. What's wrong with this picture? And it's an aerial illustration of a park in New York City that has a concrete walkway and a playground, and it's surrounded by trees, and there's grass and shrubs, and it's an article about Lyme disease and about how bad Lyme disease actually is. And so what's interesting to me is a lot of the things that are happening with the vaccine and about the coronavirus there are some parallels with Lyme disease. And so if you've had Lyme and you've been in this chronic illness for years and years and years, it's interesting to watch the general public deal with something like this because most people are unprepared. I was totally unprepared when I got sick. And if you don't have a chronic disease, it's impossible for you to understand how bad it is. It really is. I quit telling friends and family how bad it was about three months into my five-and-a-half-year saga because I realized they did not understand, and there was no way for them to understand, and they didn't want to understand because you don't want to talk to somebody every day that goes, I, can, I can't keep it together. I'm barely keeping it together. I'm not right. My brain's not right. You'd be like, okay, see you later. I'm going to go uh, watch Netflix. 
I'm going to go reread something. I just don't really want to be, it's a, it's a downer, man. Like, why are you talking about that? And then compounded by the fact that it's not like I have an arrow through my neck. It's like if I had an arrow through my neck, a big broadhead sticking out one side and an artery spewing, you'd be like, dude, you look like you're in trouble. But with Lyme, people would go, you look fine. You look fine. And inside you're like, I'm dying. I am literally dying every day. Every second of every day that I'm awake, I feel like I'm dying. And you're like, you look fine. So just let me give you a little heads up here about Lyme. Now, this article does what every other article about Lyme does in the country. And this is somebody should report, somebody should investigate this. We need an investigative journalist to really dive into this again. The article still says, today the CDC estimates there are about 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. each year. Most of them are unreported. That is complete horseshit. There are so many more cases than 300,000, and there have been for decades. It is the most misdiagnosed disease in the world. So they throw little things in here, like these bogus numbers of 300,000. But one of the guys, the, the scientist that they interview, has a quote that I thought was, was, was pretty much right on the money. Thomas Mather, PhD, director of the University of Rhode Island Center for Vector-Borne Diseases, has been studying ticks since 1983. He's known as, quote, the tick guy, and says that over the years, he may have collected more black-legged ticks than anyone. The recent rise in tick populations is something Mather has observed firsthand. If people, quote, if people could just see what I'm seeing, they would never go outside. This is so bad, I can't even... Uh, I, I want to bring this to your attention, especially for those of you who are living in parts of the country where it's so out of control. They're, you know, they're finding, in a single bush, they're finding 250 to 300 ticks on a single bush. And, you know, they're not, the winter's not killing them. The winters are shorter. They're not killing off the ticks. The, we're killing off the species that ticks would normally be associated with. And then the ticks are, instead of going to those species, they're coming to us. Just a couple of the things, the diseases that are associated with Lyme. And, and, you know, Lyme disease is one. Let me go through this article here because I just want to bring this up. Uh, there was some pretty scary stuff. Yeah, so uh, they're talking about one tick in common. Uh, black-legged ticks are t historically the ones that are carrying Lyme disease, but you've got a lot of other kinds of ticks, including lone star ticks. And these traditionally come from the southeast, but as the climate's been warming, they've been spreading, and they're now far. They're found. They're finding lone star ticks up in Maine. So these are all over the country. Lone stars carry Bourbon virus, Heartland virus, Southern tick-associated rash illness, and the pathogens that cause the bacterial infections of Erlioshis and Tularemia, which is so infectious it's considered a potential bioweapon. Think about that, people. And this is for you who live all over the world. It's on all the continents, people. This is not. This is a European thing. This is an Asian thing. It's all over the place. And let me just read you a couple of the other diseases here. You've got Lyme. You've got Ehrlichiosis. You've got uh, brain inflammation, memory problems, palsy, irregular heartbeat. Uh, you have anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Babesia, and red meat allergy, which means after you've been bitten by a tick, you can no longer eat red meat, and that's spreading all across the country. So this is one of um, a massive, massive, massive scandal in America is the cover-up that is Lyme disease. And if you do not believe me, all you got to do is do a little research, and you will find how bad this actually is and how much explaining the government and the CDC has to do in regards to this. And now it's so far out of control, and there's so many species of ticks and so many diseases that are out there. It's bad. All I'm saying to you is tick check every day, regardless of where you are in the country. If you go out into the countryside, if you're in a yard, if you brush against brush, if you have timber in your yard, 
you have got to do tick checks because one mistake and it's done. One mistake, like me, I lost five and a half years of my life and I'm still not right. I told you at the beginning of this podcast, I got up this morning and after I did yoga, I was like, uh-oh, I'm having a limey kind of day in my head. It's horrifying. It is so debilitating. And I'm lucky. I'm like one of the lucky ones. So do your chick checks. If you're in San Francisco in the city, you better be checking because the parks in the city have ticks. If you're in Southern California, holy cow, Orange County in particular, it's bad. If you're in Sacramento, it's bad. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, if you're in the West, you've got Rocky Mountain spotted fever ticks, Powassan ticks. It's bad. Texas, we already mentioned, and the whole eastern half of the country going all the way up to the Great Lakes, up through Canada, you are Lime Central, my friends. Anyway, that's it. Point number 11 is very quick. I get a lot of people reaching out and asking me if I will review their photography, if I will review their work. I cannot do it. I don't have time to do it, and I don't have time to do it well, and that means I'm not going to do it. Number 13 is I was talking to Rick from Beyond. We talk a couple times a week, and we normally talk for at least an hour. He's a really interesting guy to talk to. He's, he's intelligent. He's motivated. He's focused, and he has experience, and that's a very rare uh, person in my book. So when you're talking to him, you're not getting opinions out of nowhere. You're getting opinions based on experience, and I like that. Plus, he's funny, and we have a lot of stuff in common. But we were talking about politics, and we're both fed up with both parties. And we were talking, and I said, you know, man, it would be great if they came tomorrow. And they said, Rick, you're in charge of one party, and Milner, you're in charge of the other. And I said, between us, we could sit down with our friends, and we could iron out a lot of the problems that are hassling our government system. And I think that the two of us would actually do a better job. And he said, first thing I would do, I would reinstitute the fireside chat, which was Roosevelt, I believe. And he goes, I would fireside chat once a month, no media, no handlers, live president sitting in front of a camera live answering questions from the public from all across the board. And when someone says, hey, doofus, how come you're not doing this? And the president, no political speak. If you're a political speak, you get reprimanded. You talk like a normal human being. They say, hey, how come uh, you're not doing this? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you, but give me 30 days and come back and I'll have an answer for you. These are the people that are going to work on it. Boom. And you have an actual conversation with our politicians from state, local, federal, up to the president. And I was like, that is a great idea. That is a really, really good idea. So I just want to throw that out there. And I think, I think uh, the governor of uh, New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, she's doing that today at 1230. She's doing a state of the state live on YouTube. She talks like a normal person. She's funny and she's really good. And she turned down the secretary of interior job just to remain governor of New Mexico. So kudos to you there, Grisham. Okay, point number 12, second to last point here, is about guns. Um, this is something I've heard just rampant over the last few days, is that the Democrats are now in power, and they're going to come and take everyone's guns. And this is, again, this is a, a sort of a dog whistle that the right has been using forever. I told you when I moved to New Mexico, I drove from Costa Mesa to, to Albuquerque, and the right-wing radio at the time was saying that if, if Biden takes power— they're going to take um, – the, the liberals are going to take your, your guns, your SUV, your electricity, and tell you how many children you can have. And they were saying that from Southern California to Albuquerque. They were on point, on message. This is what's going to happen. It's all total BS, right? There's no possible way they could take your SUV. It would take years and years of legislation and rollback and having all the auto manufacturers change their manufacturing. They're pandering to what the public is asking for. They're not doing the right thing for the planet. They're doing what, they're tr what they can sell. And so they would, they're not taking your SUV. They're not going to turn off your electricity. They're not going to tell you how many kids you can have. And it's impossible, in my opinion, it is impossible to take guns 
because there are too many of them on the street already, many of which are not registered, and the vast, vast, vast majority of which are, re- are created overseas. They're built overseas. They're going to be coming into this country one way or another. It's like fentanyl, heroin, marijuana, everything else, the gun trade coming in and out. You cannot stop it. Now, I could see them implementing a, a machine gun ban, an assault weapons ban. Does someone need an M16, a fully automatic M16, or AR-15, or AK-47, or whatever? No, you don't hunt with those. They're not good for... You know, you, if you if you fire at someone and miss and it goes through your, the wall of your neighbor's house and kills someone, you're in big trouble. You know, look, I grew up with guns. I grew up in the country, rifle, pistol, shotgun. They were everywhere. No one even spoke about them. They were just like a shovel. They were like your, your Pulaski if you're a firefighter. They were like your irrigation tools when you were sent out in the morning and said, okay, you've got to dam up the beaver dam and then use these irrigation tubes to flood the hay meadow. The, the, in the back of the pickup truck, there was a rifle. There was a pistol in the house. There was a shotgun for bird hunting. They were no, no one talked about those. Um, I don't think there's any way to get those guns ever, and I wouldn't take those from people. I mean, I'd love to go bird hunting. I love pistol shooting for fun. Um, I don't really shoot anything with the rifle. I never have. I like target shooting, but I haven't done that in 20 years, so not like it's a high priority. Do I, do I think people need fully automatic AR-15s? Absolutely not. And most of the people that have those guns, I wish didn't have them. There is a subset of people that have those guns that I'm totally fine with because they're responsible, normal, rational people, and then there's everyone else. And there's a ton of people, and again, I grew up in a gun family. My parents taught concealed carry for Texas DPS. I grew up shooting from the time I could walk. I was bird hunting. I remember getting my first shotgun in elementary school, a Ruger Red Label over-under with removable chokes. It was a great gun. Bird hunted my entire life until I got into photography. My sister was in was in gun magazines as a model. This goes on and on and on. Guns have been around my family forever. I don't want them to try to take guns away from people. It'll cause a complete insurrection. Number two, I don't think we need to. I think this, this is a much, much, much wider, broader conversation than the gun itself. Why does America have such a love affair with violence and gun violence? I mean, look, there are plenty of other countries in the world that have guns that don't have the violence we do. This is a much broader issue. Having said that, there is a subset of people, these militia guys walking around the, the state house in Michigan in their tactical gear, I don't think any of whom or most of whom have never been near military service whatsoever, and they're playing soldier. Um, those guys, yeah, I would love for them to not have assault rifles because I don't trust those people. The rest of the people that have them, I have no problem because they're, like I said, normal, rational people. This is a very complicated issue that speaks to a hundred other things that are interconnected to this story. Last point. This is a long one, hour and 15, but it's good. Last point here is kind of a story and kind of a news event. So yesterday or the day before, Biden reversed the transgender military uh, whatever that Trump had put in place. So he lifted this transgender, maybe it was a ban, transgender military ban. I don't know. All I know is I saw the story, and the first thought I had was, I don't know anything about that. I can't comment on that because I don't know anything about it. Number one, I don't know anything about being transgender. And number two, I don't know anything about the military because, and here's the story part. When I was in like high school, I had a draft card, right? I got a draft card from the military. And I don't know if they called it a draft card at the time, but I remember my father bringing it into me. And this was not a pleasant moment for me. My father had tried to join the military and really wanted to go gung-ho military and then got turned down because of his knees, and that like set him on a weird, told other course in life. 
I never wanted to be in the military. I never knew anything about it. So when I got this draft card, my birthday's uh, January 1st. So uh, the card was like 00000008. And I was like, that's not good. That's not good at all. That means like if they pull from my allotment and my time, then I'm like the eighth person to go. And I was nervous. I was like, oh God. And this was like around Gulf War One time-ish, I think somewhere around there. And I was like, oh no. And all I could think about was like, how do I get out of this? How do I get it? So I would, I'm not Braveheart here. I'm not William Wallace. I'm not like running down the field with an ax ready to take someone on. I'm like weaseling out the back door. I'm not bone spur level. I'm not bone spur. And like my father didn't, you know, get me a job at the country club to get out of this thing, but I never got drafted. It never came to that. But my, in my head, I was like, not Mr. Macho. I was not brave. It's not a good thing to look back on. I kind of felt like a weasel thinking back on it now. But my point is, I don't know about the military. I was never in the military. I never served. I was never in combat. I was never in training. I've never been uh, really in a barracks other than making pictures on certain projects and assisting for people where we were around certain branches of the military, certain groups in the military. I've been around it. Um, but And the reason I'm bringing this up is a lot of people talk about the military who have no experience and no knowledge. And the reason I say this is I just happened, unfortunately, to take one quick look at Twitter after, this, after Biden had reversed this. And Twitter is embarrassing because you have all these photographers who are waxing in poetically about politics and religion and, and socioeconomic issues and foreign policy and domestic policy, and they don't know anything and they're just going on and on and on about this transgender, lifting the transgender ban. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, it's probably a good thing. Like, I'm guessing it's a good thing to lift that. But in the back of my head, I'm like, I don't know anything about it. So I, I, I'm thinking to myself, if I don't know anything about the military and I don't know anything about the transgender ban, why on earth would I comment about any of this? So I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I'm in mil the military— and this is my deluded thought about this whole thing. If I'm in the military and I'm like a foot soldier and I'm, a, I'm they're like, you're going to Afghanistan and you're going into the Korangal Valley and here's your M4 and some ammo and, you know, some body armor. I'm scared shitless. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, the two things. And so I'm on a team. I'm not like they're dropping me in there by myself. I'm in a squad or a unit or whatever they're called. I don't know. The two things that would jump out at me are training and trust. Like, am I trained? And is the person next to me trained? And do I have their trust? And do they trust me? Because we're going to need it. Because we're going to, this is, this is not, and if you don't know about the Korangal Valley, it's a hardcore warfare. Um, watch Restrepo. And I'm thinking to myself, personally, someone's sexual orientation or gender would have absolutely no factor in that in my head. But again, I have no training. I've never been in this situation. I don't know anything about it. But I'm not going to go on Twitter and make some grand proc proclamation about any of this because I don't know what I'm talking about. And so this is how I spent like 20 minutes on my hike yesterday is hypothetical seeing myself in Korangal Valley in a foxhole and wondering to myself, what does a transgender ban mean? And then now that it's lifted, what does that actually mean? And how does that impact training and being in the field and trust and, and all the different logistics of being in the field? I have no idea. I still don't know. I, it's a good thing. I don't like bans in general. I don't like the Muslim ban. I don't like any of that stuff. I don't think that's how you solve any equations long term. So good on you for lifting the ban. I think that's a great thing. And I, I, I'm, I'm, this is a far more complicated matter than is capable for my little brain 
to comprehend or make any definitive statement on. I don't like discrimination, so I think it's a good thing. Bans in general are horrible, and um, you know, like Miami Vice is not free on Netflix, and that's a crime. And I think they should lift that ban, and it should be free on Amazon Prime and Netflix and regular TV and at those boxes at the grocery store where you used to buy videos. It should be in there too. It should be available to anyone at any time for any reason. But anyway, that's my podcast for this week. Um, I hope you found that interesting, and uh, that's it. I'm kind of exhausted now, and I need to go make a film and check my email and check my Slack and check my Dropbox and a myriad of other things. But I hope you're well, and I hope these topics were interesting. And um, if you agree with me, let me know. And if you don't agree with me, then tell me why I'm wrong. And um, I w- if I am wrong, I'll admit it, because uh, I went to public school, and I was a C student later. <laughs>